You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Live Different Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wilson, and today we are here with our very special guest, Sarah Knight. You may know Sarah from her TED Talk, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, and she has the No Fucks Given Guides, uh, a, a very interesting, uh, very interesting series on how to care less, I guess, and get more of the things uh, out of your life that you want. She has a new book out, You Do You, How to Be Who You Are and Use What You've Got to Get What You Want. And uh, she has some really interesting ideas about creating a, a fuck budget and the not sorry method. And I, I am especially curious to uh, to talk to Sarah today about her story because she went from living the corporate life in New York City and uh, rising her way up through the ranks to moving to the Dominican Republic. Uh, Sarah, how is the weather where you are today? I don't know if you're in the Dominican right now, but uh, how are you doing? I am doing well. Thanks for having me. And I am in the DR right now. And I would say uh, it's about 85 degrees and sunny and the breeze is blowing in off the ocean. So it's kind of perfect. Beautiful, beautiful, Will. I uh, happen to be in Austin, Texas today where we have an office uh, for Under 30 Experiences, the uh, travel company that I'm a co-founder of, and it snowed last night in Texas, if you can believe that. People are are freaking out, and I cannot wait to get back to Costa Rica just after Christmas for the season because uh, I am not used to this, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I actually have some relatives in San Antonio, and I saw the uh, snow pictures this morning on Facebook, so I I do feel your pain. I grew up in Maine, um, so I had a very long and arduous childhood of shoveling snow, and it's probably one of the primary reasons that I am where I am today. I, I can imagine. It was pretty hilarious watching uh, Texans try to scrape off their their snow off of their cars with uh, whatever <laughs> they had in their ba- newspapers, and uh, I saw all sorts <laughs> plastic of plastic forks. Ex- exactly, I saw some some interesting ones. Uh, but Sarah, I'm, I'm really glad to to get to speak with well another nonconformist, and uh, I'd love to if you could just maybe take us back to your story a, a little bit as someone who was rising their way quite nicely as it sounds up through the corporate ranks uh, to living in, as you, you, you mentioned before we got on that, uh, please excuse any noise in the background is your house is very, has a very open air setup. And I, I said, that's, I thought that sounds quite nice. So could you tell us why you made the change? Because it might sound obvious that, oh yeah, I'm going to give up uh, the material uh, things or, or the big fancy salary. But, you know, now you've also come, become quite successful as an author, but that must have come uh, at a price, of course, in the early days. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. And uh, feel free to stop me if I'm rambling on. I'll try to condense this. About three and a half years ago, I started just being really unhappy in my job. I was a senior editor at Simon & Schuster, which was one of the top five publishers in New York, and I had worked for several of the others over the course of the last 15 years. And I had a really good 
secure job and I was quite successful at it. And I published a lot of, you know, really acclaimed and best-selling writers. Um, but I just was having a really hard time getting up every day and, and facing my commute and sitting in the office and just counting the hours until the day would be over and then having to start all over again. And I just realized that I wasn't cut out for corporate life. You know, I was good at it. Um, certainly able to handle all of the pressure and the office diplomacy, but I didn't like it. I didn't want to do it. And it took me about a year after that to develop a plan to get out, to save money. I saved money every single day for 365 days so that I would have a cushion um, when I decided to go freelance. And I also really built up my emotional cushion too, because you know, once I put that plan into motion, I knew okay, this has an end date and what's my life going to look like after? And I had a you know chance to get used to it, uh, which I think is an important part of the story because I don't want people to think that I just said, you know what, fuck this, I'm out. And, and just made a sort of really irresponsible in the moment decision to um, leave behind a, a career that was 15 years in the making. It was something that was actually a really tough decision to make. Um, but then I made it. And after that year of saving was up, I I quit my job and uh, with the intention of becoming just a freelance editor, uh, as I had been a, a book editor before, but wouldn't you know that um, I also, with leaving the job, really had a lot more creative energy to do my own work. And I think working with writers for all of those years rubbed off on me a little and I had this idea for a book and I wrote a proposal and I got an agent and I sold the book. And so as it turns out, I'm now on my third book in two years and uh, I've stopped taking on freelance editorial clients for the moment uh, because I've been so busy with my own stuff. But also in that intervening time, my husband and I uh, left Brooklyn where we had been living since the year 2000 and, uh, and built a house in the Dominican Republic and moved there. So That's that awesome. is, that is the scoop. That's great. And I'm, I'm curious because you were able to identify what you wanted to do, of course, as you said, with some thought and, and careful planning. But when you were working for a company like Simon and Schuster, a big publishing house, did you look at the people on the other side of the table and say, you know, I could really be an author and live a, a life away from from other people and, and write and uh, send it in and and be done with all this shit, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> did, you, did you have kind of that in the back of your mind that you could be an author? Or is this something that you just kind of fell into maybe after, after your TED Talk went viral? I mean, I saw you have almost 3 million views at this point. Yeah, that that is wild. Um, I would say I definitely always had the writing bug. You know, even as a little kid, I definitely thought someday I'll write a book, but I had no idea what kind of book. And, you know, I kept putting it off and putting it off because I was spending all of my days and nights and weekends um, editing other people's work. And that was great. It was really, I loved collaborating with writers. I loved bringing their ideas into the world. I worked on a wide variety of fiction and nonfiction, uh, from, you know, memoir and politics and humor to some celebrity books, to some literary fiction, to a lot of thrillers. So I, I think that it was a, it was a seed that had been planted for a long time in terms of wanting to write and enjoying writing. But I, 
never felt while I was working as, as an editor that I had any leftover time and energy to devote to my own work. And, you know, some people can do that. I've worked, I worked for someone, Colin Harrison, who's a thriller, very successful thriller writer in his own right, who's also the editor in chief at Scribner. And I worked with, you know, some other colleagues who managed to write books at four o'clock in the morning, you know, for two hours every day before they went into the office and have those dual careers. But for me, I couldn't, I didn't have the creative energy to spare. So that really came out when I, when I started working for myself. Cool. So it sounds like you, you, whether you knew it or not, you trained a long time for this opportunity to move to the Dominican Republic and be an author. I think training is a very good word for it. Awesome. Awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you, that you liked it. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about kind of the, uh, well, I, let me tell you this. I had my middle finger up to New York moment with the, the fuck this, I'm out of here moment. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't 15 years into a career. I was only a few years into my career and, uh, actually working on my own business. And so once I had the opportunity to go out and travel and work from my laptop where the, the business was, uh, big enough to support me actually as a, a blogger. Uh, we had a, a website for entrepreneurs under 30 ceo.com. And once that was uh, to a sustainable size where I could go out and travel, I did, but I was 25 and or 26 and really fed up with the way things were going for me in New York, just living an unhealthy lifestyle and, and chasing whatever people in New York seem to be chasing, especially at that age. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't leave in the nicest fashion, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I literally tell, I literally remember being in my apartment and trying to get rid of the things that I had. And uh, you actually go into this a little bit in the life-changing magic of, of not giving a fuck, like how you get rid of your stuff or, or you at least parody that um, a little bit. And I remember throwing my mattress into the freight elevator and the doorman <laughs> being like, wait, you're not going to keep this mattress? I'm like, now put it on the curb. I don't care what you do with it. Just, just get it out of here. I, I don't want it. And uh, I, I left stuff uh, at, with friends and my friends were like, really? You want me to hold on to your stuff? I was like, can you just do me a favor and hold on to this stuff? Or, you know, other family members felt a little bit taken back and uh, almost abandoned. I, so I'm, I'm curious how people can do this either A, more tactfully, or just <laughs> care less about what other people think? Well, I mean, you've hit on the the sort of first tenet of my first book, which is that you do have to stop giving a fuck about what other people think. Sure. And, uh, you know, the way that I look at it is what's important to you, um, what brings you joy, which is, you know, part of the parody of Marie Kondo's book that you mentioned earlier, and what annoys you. And if being judged by other people annoys you, then stop spending your time and energy on that judgment, you know, and, and people say, oh, I think that's, that's really hard. Well, I didn't find it hard. And I also tell people that if you try it once, then you will see how relatively easy it is. And then you'll be able to do it more and more as time goes on. So I'm sort of like a drug dealer in that way. Um, you know, giving people the opportunity to, uh, to just, just try it, 
just try it. I bet you're going to like it. Um, but you know, for me and, and for my husband, we actually didn't tell anybody what our plans were. Uh, so even though we didn't do it in maybe as, um, as sort of an explosive or sudden fashion as it sounds like you did, we didn't share our plans for me quitting my job and for us moving to another country with anybody because we didn't want to have the conversations and judgments and veiled criticisms and questions about, you know, our life decisions. So that is definitely a piece of advice that I give people a lot, which is that what other people don't know, you don't have to talk about at brunch. That that's really cool, and I also employed that strategy after uh, throwing out my stuff and putting a few belongings into a backpack and going and traveling. You know, once I fell in love with Costa Rica, I didn't I didn't just say I didn't call up my mom. I certainly did not call her and say, "Hey, mom, guess what? I moved to Costa Rica." By the way, uh, I you know just started spending more time abroad. And first, it was my first trip to Costa Rica was one month long, and my second trip was uh, three months long. Mm-hmm. And then I started spending most of the year there, as I still do. And now my mom actually loves to come visit in Costa Rica, and so oh, that's, well, that's great. Yeah, and I. Uh, but I had to do that carefully, especially because, well, I, I really do care what my what my mom thinks. But um, I wanted to ask a little bit more. I, I really have personally, I struggle with uh, apologizing and explaining myself. And I know mm-hmm. that one of your main tenets is to stop apologizing and I, I try to be as honest and straightforward with people as possible at all times, but I always find myself giving reasons and I've been more mindful about it that I don't owe an explanation to anyone, but could you help uh, help me and, and our listeners through that thing that probably everybody faces? Yeah, so I I invented what I call the not sorry method, and it has two steps. The first step is decide what you don't give a fuck about, and the second step is stop giving a fuck about those things. Uh, and that sounds like a joke, right? But really, it's that simple. You know, decide what you want to spend what I call your fuck bucks, your time, energy, and money on, and what you don't. But the idea is to convey those decisions with honesty and politeness so that you've done nothing wrong and you have nothing to feel guilty about, no matter what anybody thinks, you've explained yourself and you've acted out your decisions in an honest and polite way, which means you are not sorry. You have nothing to apologize for. So I think one of the things that people might think when they hear about my book, you know, not give a fuck, not give a fuck, give zero fucks, no fucks given, they might think that it's a way to sort of turn into an asshole and just become somebody who doesn't care about anybody else except yourself. But that's really not it. What it's about is managing, you know, giving a fuck to things that you can control, such as your own behavior. And if you know that you've conducted yourself in a perfectly forthright and polite way, then that's all you can control. And you don't have to be sorry about it just because somebody else doesn't agree with the life change that you, you know, that you've made. So for me, the not sorry method is really, it really boils down to give a fuck and give your fuck bucks to the things you can control and not about the things you can't. And you can control your own behavior 
you know, as it pertains to other people's feelings and not hurting their feelings. But you can't control other people's opinions. You have no control over that. You know, somebody might not like you because you remind them of somebody else that they don't like. You know, they might not like you because you have the life that they wish they had for themselves. They might not like you because they don't like your taste in music. You know, there's nothing you can do about that. All you can do is control your behavior and how you present yourself to the world. And if you do that, you know, in an honest and polite way, then I say you're good to go. Sure. I think that's a really important point. And I like how you stress uh, this concept of kind of radical honesty. And one of the issues that I actually have is when someone emails me or however they communicate, the 9,000 ways that people can get, that I Mm -hmm. allow myself for people to get in touch with me. Mm-hmm. But it, by right and you know important for people to know who are listening to this you're open if you're if you write back to your facebook messages or you write back to your linkedin messages or you write back to your who at whatever like skype messages you're training people how to communicate with you and exactly. i really try to be on the offensive for that that's just a, a uh, the side note, of course, especially important people in my life. If, if you're like, hey, I, I messaged you on Skype last night at three in the morning. Did you get it? Well, no, I, I don't. You, there's there's one or two good ways to get a hold of me. And yeah. <laughs> you should know those if they're if you are important. And uh, anyway, the the idea of always, first of all, I always apologize for to people who I don't get back to in a couple days, which is absolutely ridiculous because I'm not not sorry that I took time for myself. Uh, so that that's one thing that I struggle with. But also I always say, I, I always give reasons and it's so hard because I don't want to be cold or like you said, I don't want to be an asshole. Uh, but I also am training my brain to feel remorse and feel guilty every time I say, every time I say I'm sorry. And it, you're just compounding the problem here. So do you have any any advice on how I can stop doing stop doing that? Well, so that's a two-pronged question. The first in terms of just apologizing, I have become incredibly aware of how often the word sorry comes out of my mouth, you know, partly because I wrote a whole book about this and I feel like I need to practice what I preach. So, I would say probably 10 times a day I'm tempted or I'm instinctively type the word sorry, you know, sorry it took so long or sorry for the delay. And then I think to myself exactly what you said before. If I apologize for taking two days to get back to someone, that is training them to think that it is appropriate to expect to hear from me within two days. And I used to be the kind of person, particularly in my professional life, who was pathologically responsive. And I write a lot about this in in my first two books. That is no way to live. All you are doing is creating more noise for yourself um, by being pathologically responsive. So I actually still to this day, when I type the word sorry into a text message or an email, I think, am I really? And if I'm not, I delete it and I engage in a different way. So I think that there's something to be said for being mindful of that. And, you know, even somebody like me who has made a radical life change, you know, in the last couple of years, I still think about it all the time. And I figure that what I put out into the world is what I'm going to get back. So if I am constantly, 
apologizing for not, you know, being in touch with somebody in a timely fashion, they're going to expect even more from me in the future. So I would say, you know, really to, to try to be mindful of that. Um, and, you know, I think with, uh, with all of the ways that people can reach out and touch someone, you know, I'm completely in your camp where I get um, Instagram direct messages and uh, Facebook messages from people who aren't friends of mine on Facebook. And I just, I don't respond to those because I can't, I don't have the time and energy to open myself up to um, communicating with strangers. And I don't, I don't feel bad about that. So, you know, I do think that there's a little bit of training of yourself to, to not feel bad about the thing that you're doing, but it sounds like you're, you know, over halfway there. (laughs) Yeah. I'm certainly mindful of it. Right. It's like, uh, it's like the, the 12 step program, uh, or maybe this is not the 12 step program. (laughs) I it's probably a bad joke to make, but being aware of your problem is the first, is the first step. Uh, yeah. And in terms of saying, um, you know, and also of, of saying no and feeling guilty about that, you know, I write, I write also a lot about guilt in my first book. And, uh, you know, my friend Holly always says, no is an acceptable answer, and it's also a complete sentence. And I have discovered that it's actually much better to just turn down an invitation, uh, a job, uh, you know, to just say, no thanks, can't make it, or thanks so much for thinking of me, but I can't do it. You know, it doesn't have to be, so here's the thing. Uh, I've been thinking really hard about this and I can't come to your wedding because the next weekend I have this thing and blah, 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 blah. Like nobody needs to hear all that. Nobody wants to hear all that. You don't want to say all of it. And a lot of people, I think, get caught in lies because they make up reasons why they can't do something when the real reason is I don't want to do it. Um, I don't actually go in for radical honesty, which I think was the phrase you used. Um, A.J. Jacobs uh, wrote a really great column about radical honesty a few years ago, and that can get you into trouble. I like a combination of honesty and politeness. So the answer is no, but it would be impolite to say, no, I don't want to come to your dinner party because I can't stand the guy you're dating and I don't want to have to talk to him for two hours, you know? So I think that, you know, no is an honest answer and saying it in a timely fashion is polite. Waiting until the last minute and then saying no isn't fair to whoever is planning the event on the other end um, or to whoever has issued you, you know, a, a job offer or any other kind of request. And saying yes and then changing your mind at the last minute is also not cool. You know, every once in a while something comes up, you know, you actually do have food poisoning. But I think we all know that a lot of times we feel pressured into saying yes to things that we don't want to do. And then we spend three weeks torturing ourselves. And then we cancel at the last minute telling ourselves, oh, it'll be fine. And actually, that's the thing. That is the asshole behavior. That's that's not okay. Um, you're better at practicing the not sorry method and not feeling guilty about it if you rip off the Band-Aid in the first place with an honest and polite response. Yeah, I like I like the idea of just trying to rip off the Band-Aid and it might hurt, it might sting for a second, but then uh, you're over it and you don't have to deal with it again, especially, especially when it comes to making up lies. That's something that, uh, I don't want to sound like the moral police here, but... I've really, you know, yeah, that's something that I really 
do not have any any tolerance for in my life. In fact, uh, one of the things when I was listening to your TED talk uh, that I I almost struggled with because I'm kind of I'm not radically honest where it's oh well, yeah it's because I hate your girlfriend dude that's why I'm not coming to you <laughs> to your <laughs> to your dinner party or whatever. But even things like statements that are untrue like I don't have time and I can't afford it, I struggle with because probably I can't afford it and I I probably do have time if it's something within reason, but there's an underlying, there's, to me, I try to come up with better, again, now I'm justifying and because Mm -hmm. I do feel a little guilty, but could you help us craft some really good no statements beyond just the no, because I think most listeners, they're probably not just going, that's a great sentence, no, and it's an extremely important one. But could you help craft us something a little bit more tactful, please? Yeah, I mean, I actually wrote a little piece for the uh, O Magazine, for Oprah's Magazine, um, a couple of months ago, it came out, and it was sort of eight suggestions for how to say no in a way that, you know, isn't offensive to anybody. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, for example, if somebody offers me, I get a lot of requests for um, for freelance editorial work, even though my website says I'm on hiatus, people still, you know, request things. And rather than, than just say sort of a blunt, no, I can't, I don't have time, I'll say something like, thanks so much for thinking of me. This is a great opportunity. Uh, you know, it should go to somebody else right now. You know, and so it's really more about deflecting your, your, uh, decline into something positive into saying, but here's another, here's another option for you. Or if you can't go or you don't want to go to a party, uh, again, let's use the example that you don't like the other people who are going to be at the party and your friend invites you say, you know, I can't make it, but let's get a date on the calendar. Just you and me next week. Um, because that is, you know, it's true you, that you don't, you know, you don't, I say in the, in the Ted talk, that you can actually say, I don't want to, and that's okay. But if you're worried that that sounds rude, um, or if you know your friend knows you can afford it, you know, say they want you to go to box seats at the Mets game or something, and they know full well that you can afford it, uh, or they know that Wednesday is your night off, and so that's why they're asking you, but you really just don't want to go, you can say, you know, I'm just, I'm not really up for that, but I'd love to see you. Let's make a date next week. And so it really kind of... Um, you know, it just deflects a little bit of the the negative feeling of the no on the other person's end. And it shows them that you do care about them and you do want to spend time with them, but you want to do it on terms that are mutually acceptable instead of terms that are acceptable to only one of you. Okay, cool, Sarah. And and I uh, want to, I know I, I sound like I'm putting a lot of emphasis on the, the tactical here, but I do mm-hmm. want to... Uh, ask about the deflection, right? Because, all right, somebody invites you somewhere and maybe you can afford it and maybe you uh, have time to do it. But if you deflect to a further date, right, we're always training people that, hey, we really do want to hang out or, you know, that just the uh, invites to coffee with someone who you actually do like or would like to spend time with you, well, here I am saying it, you don't have the time or you're a little bit busy right now. Maybe you should just tell them that because I I get into 
uh, I've gotten into the habit in the past where I'm like, well, okay, we'll do it next week. And then it becomes another thing on the to-do list or another thing. I'm not able to actually, I didn't actually say no if I told them, if I deflected it until next week. So uh, could, do you think you could help us craft one that <laughs> is, it's a no and it's a not a next week? Well, you know, I, I hate to be um, sort of tyrannical about, about my methods, but uh, I would say if it's, if it's true that you just don't want to do something and it's not, as you said, that you, that you can't afford it or that you don't have time, then I would just say, no, thank you. You know, I, I wouldn't give an additional reason. I don't think that you have to. And I always try to remind people that if they're on the other side, if you were on the other side of this conversation or this invitation, would you want somebody to show up and do something or participate in something or, you know, do a lot of work for something that you knew they didn't want to do. And if the answer to that is yes, then you're the asshole in the equation. But right. most people would say, oh, you know what? And I mean, this is something that has um, factored really heavily into my life with my husband, whose family is very, he has a very big family and they have a lot of kids. We have a lot of nieces and nephews. We don't have kids ourselves. They live all over the country. They're always having parties, anniversaries, bar mitzvahs, just, you know, all kinds of things. And we don't, we don't really want to attend all of those things. We just, you know, we don't really want to travel for that sort of thing. And, and certainly now that we live in the Dominican Republic, it's a lot harder to get to those things. And we have really just had to train our families to accept, no, thank you. You know, RSVP, no, we'll see you another time send a gift kind of thing. Uh, and with a little bit of resistance in the very beginning and a very little bit, they've really come around to it. And this is a group of people who are not historically cool with the idea of people not wanting to do the things that they want them to do, you know? So I, I have to say that through personal experience, the simple no is really the best option. Okay, excellent. And speaking of family... I want to ask you, how can one not give a fuck at Christmas or whatever holiday they celebrate? <laughs> um, well, I, I did actually write a little uh, extra bit for the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck last year that was all, uh, you know, catering to the holidays. And it's it's really simple. You know, I talk in, in that book about how you have to inventory your fucks. And that's anything that somebody is asking you to care about, anything that you're being asked to spend your time, energy, and money on, um, and decide, you know, what's important to you and what isn't, and spend, spend your fuck budget on the things that are. So it's really not any different during the holiday season. And I think that you know, there is some sense of more forced interaction. And I don't mean forced, like, hostage situation at gunpoint with your family. You know, perhaps you quite like spending time with your family at the holidays, or it's the only time that you see everybody. But it does mean that more is being asked of you. You know, more of your time in your day is being spent with people and not doing your normal routine. And so you're perfectly allowed to carve out time for yourself. I mean, I do this, uh, particularly when traveling in a big group with my in-laws. Uh, you know, I say, we're going to get our own hotel room really close by instead of staying at the house because staying at the house I know is going to drive me insane. 
and I'm going to lash out at someone and somebody's kid is going to cry. And, you know, then my sister-in-law is going to get mad at me. And then we're going to be talking about it for the next six months in passive aggressive group text chains. So it's much better for me to say up front, hey, this sounds really great. Can't wait to see you guys. We're going to get a hotel. We'll come over for dinners. You know, we'll be there for whatever the activity is. But uh, but to protect and set boundaries, you know, basically you're you're pre saying no. <laughs> you're creating sort of a, a prophylactic measure to make sure that you don't wind up in the situation that you know is going to strain your fuck budget. Sure, and all that creates. Plenty of drama, plenty of clutter, plenty of mental drain on your mental energy. And I, I wanted to ask you about your methods for mental decluttering and if you had, uh, yeah, had some strategies for people who just want to, you know, I, I fall into the trap, of course, of, as you can see, I'm, I'm someone who does struggle with, with saying no and, and doing mm-hmm. these, these things, but I get my, my, I, really struggle with decision-making fatigue by the end of the day because I just have so many decisions that I have to make or I'm just mentally fatigued by the end of the day in general and I want to go to sleep and I don't want to talk to anybody and I want to read my book and and zone out and and that's it. Uh, but for people who are looking to mental mentally declutter, as you've put it in some of your past writings, uh, what would you offer people? So the first two books, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck and then the sequel, Get Your Shit Together, are really kind of a one-two punch of what I call mental decluttering. So if physical decluttering is two components, discarding and then organizing, not giving a fuck is sort of primarily you know, composed of the discarding aspect of it, discarding the things that annoy you, you know, the events, the people, the stuff whatever. And then get your shit together was really focused on organizing what you have left, taking the time, energy, and money that you do have, setting goals, achieving them, having the life that you want in an efficient way. So what I hear you asking is sort of, you know, how do you deploy the time, energy, and money that you do have uh, after you've kind of shoved other things to the wayside? And how do you do that in an efficient way? And for me, you know, I, obviously, since I'm now a self-help guru, which is strange, um, you know, I have these methods. And in Get Your Shit Together, the one that I hear the most great feedback on is the must-do list. And so what I do is I take my running to-do list that I always have, you know, post-it notes here and there, something written on my uh, notepad or in my any list on my phone. And I, I reorganize them via urgency, on any given day. So I look at all the things that I have to do and I say, what must get done today? And then I ignore everything else. And that means that I wind up with a list of sort of 15 or 20 ongoing items that usually gets whittled down to about three or four things that must get done today. Great. No, I think that's that's super important. And um, I, I was going to ask, and this is, is probably a little bit of an annoying question because you were someone who titled their book uh, parodying two of the most popular, you know, two extremely popular books, Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, and uh, the 
other book on not giving a fuck. I'm messing up the uh, title and on the top of the the art of not giving a fuck. Oh, I've, oh I've are you it. talking about Mark Maron's book, The yes. Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck? Yes, uh, my book came out almost an entire year before his, so I'm before. a little bit sensitive. Okay, I'm a little bit sensitive about people thinking that I uh, that I stole his idea because, in fact, my book came out about ten months before his. Wow, that's that's really interesting. But of course, you do even. Uh, you did decide to parody the life-changing magic of, of... Yes, and that was, you know, from the get-go, the introduction of the book, the cover art, it says, a practical parody. That yes. was the whole idea. It was, um, you know, just like, uh, you know, Goodnight iPad is a parody of Goodnight Moon. And, you know, there's all these sort of books yes. that have come out over the last decade that are parodies of, um, you know, existing bestsellers. And what happened with me was that way back when I quit my job, that was in the summer of 2015, I had a stack of books that I hadn't had a chance to read because I had been spending all my time editing other people's books and I didn't have any time for pleasure reading. <clears throat> so one of those was Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And I read it and I really liked it and I still use some of her tips and tricks today. But when I read it and when I was in that headspace of having just shed so many fucks that I was giving to my corporate life and my commute and my wardrobe and, you know, my my office diplomacy and all of that, I thought to myself, you know what would be a really, A, a really funny parody would be to say not giving a fuck instead of tidying up. But B, I could really do for mental clutter what she's doing for, for physical clutter. So it was definitely fully intended as a parody from the get-go and is a pretty, I would say, a fairly close parody of that book um, and an affectionate one. But it grew into this sort of not uh, a, a movement, a self-help movement in and of itself that I didn't really expect. So that's how... I jumped from that book to get your shit together, which is, as I said, you know, in the proposal to my publisher, I said, this isn't a parody of a best-selling self-help guide. It's a sequel to a best-selling self-help guide that was a parody of a best-selling self-help guide. That's um, and that's sort of, that's sort of how the No Fucks Given series uh, got born because people were so excited about not giving a fuck. So I'm very happy for Mark Manson. I, I think there's plenty of room on the shelves uh, for multiple books about not giving a fuck, but mine did come first by I quite see. a wide margin. <laughs> very, very interesting. Well, yeah, thank you for, for letting me know that. And uh, But, you know, actually my, my question was, did, have you always just not – given a fuck did it come naturally i know that you said you used to be pathologically sorry i think is is what you said but did this is something that you have had to to work on correct i would say that i've always had the inclination to not give a fuck but i have not given myself permission to do it until the last several years and, you know, I talk about that evolution a little bit in the introduction to the first book where I say it was around the time that my husband and I were getting married that I really started to say, you know, to put on the brakes, especially dealing with family and say, no, <laughs> I am not going to give my fucks to this thing that you want me to do. You know, and that was a, a bit of a turning point. I was also just starting my 30s at that point. I had just started my first job as a senior editor. Um, so there were a lot of things that were competing and stressing me out and, you know, and really making my fuck budget overflow. And I ended up having panic attacks for the first time and really starting to physically manifest all of that stress. And that was when I really started to think, you know what, 
maybe I could just say no. Maybe I could set some boundaries. Maybe I could stop giving these fucks and it, and it evolved from there. So that's been the better part of a decade, I would say. Excellent, excellent. Now you're you're the leader of a movement of people not <laughs> giving a fuck. So that's uh, yeah, that that's awesome. Um, yeah, I think it's a good place to transition, of course, into mm -hmm. what to do with your newfound uh, fuck budget. And of course, you're spending your time on a tropical island, and uh, so many people, of course, would love to be in, in your shoes doing that. Uh, but your new book, of course, is called "You Do You." So, could you talk a little bit about? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure of all all of our listeners understand the the catchphrase "You Do You," but what to do once you have this uh this budget and and you all actually have a little bit of free time and uh and money to be able to do things that fulfill you so can you talk about doing you yeah and you know i think that this is my most personal and sort of most poignant book uh and it really came out of me saying I wish it hadn't taken until I was almost 40 to be so comfortable with who I am and what I want out of life and how I am capable of getting it. And, uh, you know, you mentioned, I think, the word nonconformist at the beginning of this podcast. And this book really is for people who feel a, a huge amount of pressure to conform to what their family or friends or colleagues or just society as a whole uh, expects from them and and wants them to be and people who chafe at that and who say, you know, I'm everybody says don't be so selfish, but I kind of want to be a little bit selfish because I really feel like I need to take care of myself. If I don't act selfishly, then I'm never going to have what I want. So the book You Do You takes us through what I call the clauses of the social contract, which are these things that you know when you're a little kid, you're sort of grown up to to believe or to, uh, you know, rules that you're supposed to follow or obligations that are supposed to be met, like family always comes first. And I say, you know what? What if you're not the kind of person for whom family should always come first? You know, what if you have a fraught relationship with your family? What if you've made amazing, wonderful friends over the course of your life who don't happen to be related to you and you have to choose between them and a family member who maybe has not been as kind and respectful and and treated you well and that you don't have as much of a bond with. It's okay to choose non-family and here's why. And so the book is really, uh, you know, the, the flap copy calls it unconventional wisdom, but it's really to say, you know, I am a person who has, who possesses these qualities and instead of changing these qualities, I'd like to work with them. And I call it uh, mental redecorating, which is kind of an offshoot of the mental decluttering of the first two books. But I call it feng shui with a side of fuck that shit. Because <laughs> what you do is you take stuff that already exists, just like you do when you're, you know, renovating a room with the principles of feng shui. You move stuff around so that the flow is better, so that it's working with you, not against you. And I feel like You Do You is a book for people for whom, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. What's wrong is the way that society treats you. So instead of changing who you are, I just want to help change how you feel about who you are and how you deal with other people who, you know, would say that you have these flaws that 
maybe you don't actually believe our flaws. And, um, you know, I use a lot of personal examples from the book, you know, in the book, because I'm somebody who has, you know, who I think people would sort of look at and say, oh, you know, she's, she's not really a team player. She's kind of a lone wolf, you know, maybe she's a little bit of, and, and maybe they would think I'm kind of a bitch or something. But in the book, I write about, you know, how great it is to love your solitude and protect your solitude and how, you know, the, the drawbacks of playing on a team and working with others sometimes. And I'm trying to give voice to people who have always thought, you know what, like everybody says there's something wrong with me for doing it this way, but there isn't anything wrong with me for doing it this way. So that's where the subtitle comes from, you know, of how to be who you are and use what you've got to get what you want rather than having to change who you are, which is, I think, uh, often a, a poor, uh, result of the self-help genre is, you know, trying to change people. Yeah, that's, that's awesome though. That's what I was just going to say about self-help is that so much of it is about changing who you are when you're just helping people change their perspective or their, their frame. And I, I actually, I loved how you, uh, talked about those phrases like family first uh, that Mm -hmm. we've grown up with and been so ingrained in. Do you have any other phrases that people, just as a little check-in with people, even if you had them, you you rattled off a few of them, uh, that people think, yeah, people just think that these are the way that we're supposed to live when when in fact, maybe it's not. Well, the, uh, the book is split into three parts. So it's do's and don'ts, wills and won'ts, and shoulds and shouldn'ts. So the do's and don'ts are, for example, do your best. And that whole chapter is about the dangers of being a perfectionist and of, you know, sort of constantly striving to do better and better when really, you know, you kind of need to check in with yourself and say, I'm, I'm putting out a little bit too much energy for what I'm getting back. So, you know, it's things like don't be selfish, uh, which I mentioned before, do your best. In the wills and won'ts, you know, I have one uh, chapter that's called You Will Never Get Anywhere With That Attitude. And it's about the power of pessimism and how, you know, it's really, it's actually useful uh, to be a pessimist. And again, the book is really for people who identify with these what I would put in air quotes, flawed, uh, you know, ways of looking at the world. I don't think they're flawed. I actually think they're quite useful. Um, another one in the shoulds and shouldn't section is you shouldn't act so crazy. And I write a lot about mental health and how it's actually really important to be performative and to tell people what's wrong with you and to take active measures to solve mental health problems rather than trying to hide your quote unquote craziness. Um, another chapter in that section is you shouldn't eat that. And it's about body image. And I say, you know, I, I share a lot of personal stories of, um, my own struggles with eating disorders and with body image. And I talk about how, you know, you can't listen to people who, who have these opinions about what you're putting into your body and what your body looks like. You just have to listen to yourself. So each, each chapter is sort of one of those clauses Um, you should smile more is another one. And it's really about how it's not your job to be nice. Like you don't have to walk down the street being nice just for the hell of it. Um, You know, maybe you're not in the mood to be nice. A guy once told me uh, on the subway that I should smile. um, And it was the day that I had actually euthanized my cat and he had died in my arms. And I was like, you know what? 
I'm not, I, was, I wasn't put on this earth to smile at you. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of that in the book, as I said, some, you know, personal anecdotes, but it then delves into more advice about how you can, how you can do you, uh, in ways that are healthy and that, you know, are true to your own beliefs, but in the same way that in the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck, I say that you can give fewer better fucks without turning into an asshole. Uh, in You Do You, I say that you can do you without turning into a psychopath. Um, and a lot of that is about is about having empathy for other people and understanding that in as much as you want to be able to do you, you have to let them do them too. And that's kind of a lesson that I taught myself in the writing of the book. So um, it's a it's a new thing for me, being less judgmental and less critical of other people, and just remembering that they are also trying to do them. So. That's great, and the the world certainly needs more of of that. Uh, Sarah, before before we wrap up here, I, I I was hoping that you could give people a little bit of glimpse into into the good life, let's say, or into the life <laughs> now that you you live in the Dominican Republic, and, and please. Uh, no need to over, uh, you know, people ask me about life in Costa Rica and yeah, it's pretty amazing. And we have amazing wildlife and nature and jungle and beaches there that uh, I love spending time in. And the, the weather is amazing, but it's also very dif difficult uh, to live in a foreign country and be far away from family. So no need to sugarcoat it, but tell us about your life now. I'm, uh, I'm curious what life is like for you in the Dominican Republic. Well, it is much slower. And that is something that I both think I really needed. I needed to be forced into living a less stressful life than the one that I lived in New York City. Uh, but it's also challenging because, you know, my husband and I have definitely brought our American sensibility down here and we often don't understand why other people don't have the same sense of urgency that we do about getting particular things done. Uh, so we've been, you know, trying to find a balance in that. Uh, it's also been really interesting and fun to learn Spanish. I spoke French before, so it was, you know, it's slightly easier for me because I was able to use some of that language to, to figure out some of the prime Spanish a little bit faster than I might otherwise have. But that's just an ongoing daily uh, challenge, which is interesting. <laughs> and especially because when we actually built this house from the ground up and the contractor was French and the workers were Spanish speaking. And so it was a lot of uh, interesting interesting conversations with a lot of um, arm gestures and, <laughs> and things like that. Nice. Um, and, you know, the other thing is that the weather is so unpredictable. It can be absolutely beautiful for days on end, but it can just start pouring right before, you know, for example, my husband is a musician and he, you know, you can't put speakers and wires and electric guitars and things out on the beach in a, tropical rainstorm. So you do end up changing plans at the last minute uh, due to the weather, due to strange events in town. Recently on my Instagram, I shared a video of about 17 cows that were in the road when we were trying to get home <laughs> the other day. Uh, so it's just, you know, one of those things where there's something new every day. It's definitely a lot more relaxed. Uh, but there, there are challenges that we're that are very different than the ones that we faced in New York. For example, the tarantula that I found in our living room a few oh, weeks ago, yeah. uh, which was also documented on Instagram. And 
if anybody's interested in the real no holds barred, uh, I did write a piece for Medium called, I believe it's called Eight Things Nobody Tells You About Moving to the Caribbean, uh, in which I detail a number of um, a number of things that definitely don't make it onto HGTV. Awesome, awesome. Well, uh, we will sure to to link that up in in the show notes, and I appreciate all those little tidbits from your life because there's. Uh, a lot of similarities uh, between yeah. the Dominican Republic and and Costa Rica, and uh, yes, yeah, this has been this has been really awesome. I was I was wondering uh, if you could leave our uh, listeners with just a little bit of advice. It, it does not have to be uh, specifically about how to not give a fuck or how to do you, but if people just overall in their life want to. Uh, just be better people, live a, a healthier, happier lifestyle, all, all overall. What would you tell Well, them? I'm going to get a little morbid, and I'm going to tell you everybody dies, okay? And your life is getting shorter every single day. So that was a realization that I came to for, you know, as a result of a number of different things that happened in my personal life. And it has definitely fueled every decision I've made in the last couple of years, which is to say, this doesn't last forever. So do what you want now. Have your fun now. Explore the things that you have always dreamt about. Make the big life changes that you're afraid to make because someday you won't be able to make them and you don't know when that day is going to come. Well, shit, Sarah, I better let you go before you <laughs> die on us here and uh, all our listeners better get off of this podcast right now and go check out the new book, You Do You by Sarah Knight. Sarah, where can people uh, find you online and reach out, although you might not give a fuck? <laughs> well, everything about my books is on my website, sarahknightauthor.com. And you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Medium at MCSnugs, which is M-C-S-N-U-G-Z. And I'm very active on those platforms, although I do not typically respond to DMs. <laughs> awesome, Sarah. Well, thanks for being a great sport and giving really great advice. I, re I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed that past episode. If you are looking to put these things into practice, I invite you to come next July to Peru and Machu Picchu with me and my girlfriend, Luz Garcia, a 1,500-hour registered yoga teacher for an amazing retreat that we are putting on. Uh, if you would like more information, Check out under30experiences.com and find Yoga and Peru. Uh, we would love to connect with you further. We have some amazing community events coming up on under30experiences.com. And no, uh, you don't just have to be under 30 years of age. We are an inclusive community rather than an exclusive co community. And finally, if you are on the same mission as I am, I would love if you shared this episode with a friend, a friend who needs it. If you can support uh, this podcast, that would mean a whole lot to me. Share it, subscribe, leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I would love if you even did it 
just a little justice and give it a like on our new YouTube channel. Those type of things go a long way in helping other people find great content that is going to help them live happier, healthier lives. So thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to connect with me, feel free to email me. Give me some feedback, matt at under30experiences.com or hit me up on social media, Matt Wilson TV on just about any social platform. Talk to you guys soon.